This morning, I'm going to read from Matthew 5, um, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. You can follow along in your Bibles, or it will also be on the screen behind me. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to be with you for yet another Lord's Day. One thing I wanted to encourage all of you in, as we have been encouraged as a family, is if you have not picked up one of these Advent devotionals from the back table, I would highly encourage you to do this. Uh, This is such a gift that has been given to us by two of our members, Andrew and Katie Babb, who wrote this and did the illustrations and put time and effort into thoughtful questions and scripture verses. Uh, Our family has been going through that, and it has been such a joy to not only have a guide to worship in our home, to have songs to sing and scripture to meditate on it, on, but it has also been a joy to us to know that the church is also doing the very same thing, that each night when we gather in our home and read through this and open the word and sing these hymns together, uh, that we know that all of you are doing likewise. And it not only is a great encouragement to us, Uh, but it also creates a great anticipation for Sunday when we actually get to be together to see one another's faces, to listen to voices, to pray, to worship together. So um, I also make $2 on every one that you pick up, so I would really encourage you to grab one. I'm just kidding. Uh, It's $5. Um, But uh, I think you guys would be greatly encouraged by grabbing one of those, doing that as a family, and just being unified with our body in that way. So before we go to our text this morning, let's go to the Lord briefly in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this morning that you have provided for us. Lord, we thank you for allowing us to wake up this morning to come here to this place to gather with our dear brothers and sisters to worship your holy name. Lord, we thank you for sending your son Jesus, that he was born in a manger, grew in wisdom and stature, And stood on this hillside thousands of years ago and preached a sermon that we are still reflecting on, being encouraged by, and reminded of even today. Lord, I pray that your word would have its way and do its work in our hearts. That through the power of your word and the work of your spirit, Lord, that we would leave here a people transformed and renewed, further sanctified as we continue to press on in this life. Lord, we lift up all these things in your name. Amen. One of the things in our house that we love are the Olympics. I don't know about all of you, but every two years when the Olympics come on TV, whether it is in the summer or it is in the winter, it is cause for much celebration in our home. Uh, And it was also this way when I was a kid growing up where it seemed like 
we never had any interest in sitting down on a Saturday afternoon and watching swimming or curling or gymnastics or any of these other sports, but man, when the Olympics are on, we are glued to every single meet and event. And it is so cool to see some of the best athletes in the world put on their country's colors and represent their country in all of these different forms of athletic competition. And one of the things that I uniquely enjoyed growing up and still do to this day is the insight and the window that it gives to other countries and cultures. Um, As a small town guy from the East Coast, I had never left the country, still have never left the country. And so I had really no exposure to these cultures outside of what I would read or see on TV. And so it was always neat to see the opening ceremony, something that so embodies the culture and the values of that particular country that might be hosting as they do profile stories on different athletes from different parts of the world that might be the best in their particular field. And we came to know that these cultures and these citizens of these countries are known for various things. Uh, In Japan, for instance, they are a nation and a people that are known for their cleanliness. Uh, It is a defining characteristic of the people of that nation. In fact, the World Cup is going on, and a few weeks ago, Japan beat Germany, and they went back to the locker room to celebrate, and I guess when the cleaning crew went in, they took a picture that has since gone viral on social media of the cleanest locker room that they had ever seen. There were no uh, dirty clothes, sweaty clothes left in the lockers. There was no trash scattered amongst the floor. In fact, every towel that had been used was folded and returned neatly, and the players had even made origami swans and left them on the centerpiece for the people that would come in after them. And a thank you note for blessing them with such amazing facilities. Um, in America, we are known for our love of America, for our nationalism. We spend one day every year seeing how many hot dogs we can eat, wearing the stars and stripes, and for 240-some-odd years, we have shot guns and fireworks in the air to celebrate our independence. And people know that we like ourselves. It's a great tradition. But how are the citizens of heaven to be known and identified? What are the distinguishing characteristics of those of us that are in Christ? How will people know us from the world? That brings us to our text this morning where Jesus, as he begins this Sermon on the Mount, tells us exactly what our DNA is in Christ and how we are to be known and identified. If I could give you a main point for our sermon this morning, it is that citizens of heaven are lowly, holy, and persecuted. And we will unpack that as we go through God's Word this morning looking at these Beatitudes and seeing all that Jesus has for us as he preaches this sermon. So if you're not already there, I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, as you'll be helped by having them in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you, there are some on the back table uh, that you probably saw when you came in. I would encourage you to grab one and keep it as our gift to you, for there's nothing more that we would love for you to have than a copy of God's Word. So if you find yourself without one, I'd encourage you to grab one. It'll be helpful this morning, and it'll be helpful moving on. I don't have permission to do that, so we'll see how that goes after the service. So lots of forgiveness. But as we approach our text this morning, just by way of a brief recap, there's a few things that have gone on in previous chapters that we've covered in recent weeks. We see that Jesus has begun His earthly ministry. He has been baptized. He has been tempted. He has begun to preach a message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Last week, we looked at the fact that he has called four men, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, to be his disciples, to follow him in this great mission of seeking and saving the lost. They immediately leave everything that they have and follow him. And then Jesus goes on to teach in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, healing every disease and every affliction amongst the people. And so as we begin in chapter 5, we see that Matthew says that seeing the great crowds, there are a number of people who have heard what Jesus has said, who have heard the news about what Jesus is doing, who have maybe even witnessed these healings with their own eyes, and they are following Him. They are gathered around Him to see who is this Jesus and why is He here. And so the great crowds gather, Jesus sits down, and in verse 2 it says that He opened His mouth and He taught them. It would be so easy to overlook this simple verse which seems more tactical than practical in its application, but we must remember that it is from the mouth of the Lord that all things have been created. That through the Word of God that all is created, that all is made new, that it is from this mouth that the wind and the waves obey, that mountains can be moved, that nations can be brought down and humbled. And it is with this great power, straight from the mouth of God comes the Word of God to teach and instruct His people. And as Jesus goes on to preach the most famous sermon ever preached, he doesn't begin like so many other religions do by telling us all of the things that we must do to earn salvation. He simply comes to us and tells us who we are and who he has made us to be as new creations in him. So he begins with this first section as we look at the citizens of heaven are lowly. We see that in the first three verses here of Jesus' sermon, where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So blessed are the poor in spirit. The theme of being poor is consistent throughout the Old and New Testament. It is referred to often Jesus says that the poor will always be with you, and he references in the Psalms those of poor spirit. And this, poor, this poverty of spirit is really being completely depraved of anything of their own, being completely emptied. Being poor is a significant burden, for you have nothing by which to pull yourself out of your situation. Most likely, because you are poor, you obviously have no money, no possessions. It's very possible you have no skill and no family business. As we saw last week, the disciples were a part of a robust family business of fishermen. You have nothing with which to bring or to offer. You are helpless and completely externally dependent, relying on someone else to care for you. This is quite the opposite of what cultures value, certainly what Rome would have valued in that day and even what our culture values today, where we are to be the opposite 
of poor in spirit, but we are to be prideful, arrogant, sure of ourselves, self-reliant, able to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, not poor. But Jesus, throughout His earthly ministry, and we see it here, has never neglected the poor, but He embraces them. For it is when we are poor, when we are truly emptied and humble enough to receive, that Jesus goes about filling us with all forms of spiritual blessing. It is when we, as citizens of heaven, recognize that we have nothing to offer, nothing to bring to the throne of grace, that Christ meets us there and says, I will fill you with myself. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus goes on in verse 4 to say, blessed are those who mourn. This idea of mourning points back to what we talked about a few weeks ago when we covered repentance, that if you'll remember, one of the aspects of true repentance is a grieving of sin. This mourning that Jesus speaks of here is not just the sorrow for the bad things that can happen in our life. It isn't the sorrow for, oh, I got a flat tire and I'm late for work, or man, I didn't get the Christmas bonus that I wanted this year. It is the mourning over sin of our sin, and of the sin of the world. We see this in Jesus' own example when Lazarus dies. Jesus is told of Lazarus' death, and he returns back to the city, and he stands before Lazarus' tomb, and he weeps. He doesn't weep because he will never see his friend again. He doesn't weep because he goes, man, I don't know how we get him out of there. For we know that Jesus had all power and authority to raise him for the dead, which he was about to do. But Jesus weeps when he is confronted with the reality of that this world is not what he created it to be. That he created us for perfect fellowship with God in the garden, only knowing that which is good and not knowing that which is evil and sinful, and yet sin takes such a toll on the lives of each one of us. And so we mourn and we grieve over sin and its effects on our world. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, who see this and recognize this, for they shall be comforted. And in verse 5, Jesus goes on and he said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now notice how meek follows poor in spirit and those who mourn. For how we view ourselves dictates how we live and relate to others. Paul gives us a great example of what it looks like to be meek in 1 Timothy 1 when he writes to Timothy, I am chief among all sinners. This is Paul, right? Most of us, if we were to say, okay, Jesus is clearly the standard. He is perfect. But if we had to pick the next best Christian, who would it be? Most of us would probably pick Paul. He wrote more books of the Bible than anybody else. He planted more churches than anybody else. He was imprisoned and had all of these horrible things happen to him, and yet he stood the test and he continued to endure. This is the same Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians, who had to write three letters to the Corinthian church because they were doing things that they shouldn't be doing doing all kinds of debaucherous things, Paul addressing in some of his letters that they traded natural relations for unnatural. Paul has seen it all. 
And yet he is meek. He is poor of spirit. He mourns the sin that he sees in his own life. And he says, no, I am the chief amongst all sinners. For meekness is the outworking of being poor of spirit and having a posture of mourning our sin. For if we are truly meek, then we cling only unto the cross. And we never act as if we deserve what we have, the grace that has been given to us, or that at some point in our life or in our Christian walk that we have earned it. We are no more worthy of Christ's grace after 50 years of following Him than we are five minutes after following Him. The only difference between the life of those who have been following Jesus for 50 years and those that have been following Him for five minutes is that just like Paul, we have a greater understanding of our great need for Him. We live meekly because we have been given everything that we didn't deserve. What great joy and humility this should fill us with. Citizens of heaven are lowly. For these ideas of being lowly, of poor in spirit, of being a people who mourn, and of being meek, this is very countercultural, isn't it? It isn't our natural posture. We want to be happy. We want to exude confidence that we have it together. In fact, many of us go to great lengths to put on that face every single day. Maybe this is why so many of us struggle with the Christian life because we assume it's to be lived the same way that we are to live in the world or to live according to the American dream. That it is about striving, obtaining, looking like we have it together. But this isn't what Jesus calls us to follow. He doesn't tell us to go and do. He said, this is who you are because of the new creation that I have made you to be. Jesus has called us to be empty, to acknowledge our emptiness so that he may fill us. He calls us to mourn our sins so that we may be comforted and forgiven. He calls us to be meek so that we would not boast or cling to anything but him. Citizens of heaven are lowly. But as we continue on to look at what Jesus outlines for us here in the opening verses of his sermon, we know that the citizens of heaven are lowly and the citizens of heaven are holy. Jesus goes on to say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If you are poor of spirit, you recognize that you have nothing to offer. You have nothing to come to the throne of grace with, and yet you long to be like Jesus. And so you yearn for Christ's righteousness. Citizens of heaven are enamored with Jesus and with being like Jesus. And God promises us that if this is the hunger, the thing that we hunger and thirst after, that we will be fully satisfied in it. Where else can we find such a promise? Does money offer us the same promise? That the more that we pursue it and the harder that we work to earn it, that we will just be all the more satisfied with it? Does recognition 
or approval? Does that come with the same promise? That the more that we speak of ourselves and impress those around us, the more that we scale our social media following, that all of a sudden we will be fully satisfied with the likes and comments and encouragements that we get? These promises return void. They promise something that they cannot deliver on, but Christ says, hunger and thirst after me. Desire nothing else but to be like me, and you will be fully satisfied. How is your spiritual appetite? What do you hunger and thirst for? Jesus goes on to say, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy can be defined as the act of which withholding that which is rightly deserved. God desires a relationship with us, and so he extends us mercy in order to make this possible. And he calls us to go and do likewise. He calls us to be a merciful people, to be known by our mercy, not as a one-time act, but as a continuation throughout our life. For God promises that if we are merciful, that he will be merciful unto us. He goes on in verse 8 to say, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is a direct contrast to probably many of the people that he would have been speaking to. For these people in this crowd would have been very familiar with the Pharisees, with people that were all about the outward appearance, about looking a certain way, about giving the appearance of holiness, but inside they were vile and a godless people. When Jesus calls us to be of pure in heart, he is really concerned with what is inside of us, not just what is on the external. And to be pure of heart, we must be a people who are single-minded. Andrew preached a great sermon a few weeks ago where he reminded us of that from James's letter. We must not be a double-minded people, constantly falling in and out of love with the world, constantly returning to the world and turning to Christ, but we must be a people that recognize that in Christ, we are a new creation, that the old has gone, that every day we wake up and we crucify our former selves, for we are no longer the, master, the slave unto sin, but we are a new creation, that we are Christ's that we are called to live as He is calling us to be in all of these verses, and that we must be of a single mind as to what we pursue and what we run after. For God judges the hearts of man. We see this in so many examples throughout the gospel. We see it in the woman who is sick and reaches out to grab Jesus' cloak. We see it in the blind man who cries out, Heal me, Son of God. We see it in the friends that lower their paralytic friend through the roof and put them before Jesus. Jesus sees each of these people and is not impressed by their work, but he is impressed by their faith. He is impressed by their heart. And he says, that is what has made you well. For these people weren't scholars. They most likely could not have quoted hundreds of scripture verses or written a systematic theology book, but they saw God. And they believed that he was who he said he is. Their faith was like a child, pure, simple. 
And the best description of a pure of heart that I can leave us with is just a heart that desires to be like Jesus. For Jesus knew no sin in thought, word, and deed, and he lived his entire life with a single mind to do the will of his Father and to glorify his Father in all things. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the last verse that rounds out our call that citizens of heaven are holy is in verse 9 when it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. We see with many of these beatitudes that it is not simply a heart change and transformation, but that it results in a life that flows outward unto others. This call to be peacemakers assumes that there will be conflict and an opportunity for strife in our life. For as people that are living as Christ has called us to live, it will constantly be in tension with the lives that those in the world are living. And we'll see that in just a second when we look at the persecution that Christ speaks of. But he calls us not to be people known for our strife, but to be people who desire peace. And not just peace in our relationships with one another, but we also, as peacemakers, must desire for all men to live at peace with God. That if we are on mission with Christ, and His mission is to seek and save the lost, then we must desire to see all men restored to right relationship with God, to live at peace with Him. That is the other aspect of what it means to be a peacemaker. For as Jesus is the Prince of Peace, so also must all of the citizens of His kingdom be known and marked by their peace. If we are to be like Christ, we cannot be that which He is not. The citizens of heaven are lowly and holy. Being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is not just about a genuine posture, this poor of spirit, mourning, and meek, but it is also about genuine fruit that flows from that posture. For if our hearts are positioned properly, differently than our former selves, then our actions will also be different. If people were to meet you, would they know that you are a citizen of heaven? Would they know that your number one pursuit in your life is to be more like Jesus, or do they simply see that Jesus is your Sunday morning activity? Would the people who know you describe you as merciful, or would they step back and be like, man, that guy is ruthless about all the things that pertain to him? Would they see you as double-minded? where some days you seem like you love the things of the Lord and other days you are totally consumed with the world? Would they know you as a peacemaker? Or are you constantly stirring the pot, pushing people politically or how they choose to school their children or on various secondary theological issues? You see, this is so important because these beatitudes, these things that we are reading this morning are not spiritual gifts. They are the very essence and DNA of the Christian life, for they are the very essence and DNA of Jesus. 
that as believers, we are not just better versions of our former selves, we are new creations in Christ. The old has passed away and the new is here. We are filled with the Spirit, transformed by the power of Jesus, that just as the disciples left all that they physically had, as we saw in our text last week, we are called to leave our former selves, put it to death daily, and to live these things out in our lives, not through striving or through work, but through hungering and thirsting to be more like Jesus. Is the holiness of Jesus seen in your life? Dear friends, I would offer a great encouragement in this. For as I stand here, it is such a joy uh, to be able to stand in front of you. I know for many, public speaking is the number one fear, uh, even over death. So I know many of you are like, "Uh uh-uh, he's not getting me up there. But it is a joy to stand here and to look out on all of these faces and to see these characteristics and qualities in each of you. For as I look at your faces and I think about your lives, I see so many of these things and I'm so greatly encouraged. That what a joy that a church would be known by these things, not just its pastor, but its people, its members, its citizens of heaven. Dear friends, continue to press on in these things. Continue to run to the throne of grace. Continue to hunger and thirst for righteousness so that we may be like Jesus, not only to be an encouragement to one another, but to be a bright light to a watching world. The citizens of heaven are lowly, holy, and in the last place, the citizens of heaven will be persecuted. Jesus says in verse 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In verse 10, Jesus repeats his promise that the kingdom of heaven is for these people. But we as people can oftentimes feel persecuted for a, very, for a variety of all different kinds of things. But that's not what Jesus is getting at here. He specifically says, blessed are you who are, purchased, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and in 11, on my account. The fact that he says this means that it comes from following him. It is not just persecution because we are evil or wicked or unkind, but it is because of him who we follow and him who has transformed us to be more like him. We can be assured that if we live this way, it will present a conflict with how people live in the world. And it will be met with persecution. For Jesus says in the Gospel of John, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, 
they will also persecute you. Dear friends, persecution can be a great encouragement to us because if we are persecuted for Christ's sake, for righteousness' sake, then we have been chosen out of the world, no longer called its own, but we are His. And it can serve as a great comfort for us. For if we were of the world, the world would love us. The world hates you because you present a contrast to their present way of life. That instead of being a citizen of heaven marked by being lowly, holy, and justified by Christ's finished work on the cross, the world is identified and exposed as being haughty, evil, and condemned. And when confronted with these two conflicts, we will typically see one of two responses. The first is that it will expose sin and bring about an awareness of their sin, and we will see people repent and turn unto Jesus. How many of us is that our story where we saw the love of Christ and the truth of the gospel lived out in someone in our life? Maybe it was a parent or a sibling or a dear friend or a coworker. And we were able to look at that and say, man, I know who I am. That person is completely different, and I want whatever that is. And we pray to this end that that would be the response of all that we would come into contact with. But we also know that there's another response, and that their hearts will be hardened, and they will hate God, and they will hate His people. For if the world are evil and a wicked people, then they will hate Jesus because He is perfectly good and perfectly holy, and it will present an affront to their way of life. The world hates us. The world hates you and me because we are being sanctified, transformed daily to be more like Jesus. These beatitudes that we have worked through are characteristics of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That if these things are evident in your life, that it bears witness that you have abandoned everything to follow Jesus. That just as the disciples, when confronted with a call to leave it all, you counted it all as loss and said, Christ is worth it. And immediately you turn from your former self and you run unto Christ means that you do the hard work of discipleship day by day, looking unto Jesus to finish the good work in you that He has begun. So as we bring our time to a close this morning, we must not neglect to look at the comfort of these great promises. For while we can take comfort in persecution because we understand that it means that we are Christ's, that we are a new creation, we can also take comfort in the blessings that God promises to us in this sermon. That He does not just simply tell us to follow Him, buckle up for misery, and leave it there. He does tell us to follow Him and take up our cross. But He also tells us that our reward will be great. He promises us the kingdom of heaven. He promises to comfort us He promises us the earth, satisfaction, mercy, an ability to see God, to be called sons and daughters of God. He promises us the kingdom of heaven and a great reward once we are with Him eternally in heaven. 
Jesus has promised us everything that we could ever desire or hope for. A rich and abundant blessing that continues to pay out for all of eternity in a place where it does not fade, rust, or die off. And the beauty of this reward is that it's not earned, it's given freely. And if you are joining us this morning here or online, and you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you, don't wait one more day. For this gift of grace, these rewards and promises are available to you. I would love to talk with you. Come and find me after the service or anybody that's been up on this stage at any point today. Turn to somebody around you. We would love to listen to you, to share the good news of the gospel with you. I'll even let you take me to lunch. It'll be great. But Jesus loves you and he stands ready to make you a new creation. And if you are here today and already trusting in Jesus, Jesus doesn't call you to earn anything. He doesn't begin this great sermon by telling you what to do. He begins the sermon by saying, this is who you are. Let us rejoice that these things have been made available to us. Let us encourage one another to press on, take up our cross, to live as citizens of heaven, and run our race well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we rejoice that you have given us a new identity. That the old is gone. That we have turned from our sin, repented, and that you are continually, daily, transforming us to be more and more like you. Lord, I pray that we would be a people defined by all of these things we see in this great sermon. That we would be poor in spirit, that we would mourn our sin, that we would be meek, that we would be lowly, holy, and prepared to be persecuted for your name's sake. Lord, may we be a people that ever cling to the cross of Christ, never relying on ourselves or the work that we can do, but recognizing that we have nothing to bring, but simply to the cross we cling. Lord, we ask that your word would do its work in the hearts of your people this morning. Amen.